Well, hello. Welcome to GRC and Me, a podcast where we interview governance, risk, and compliance thought leaders on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, and trends to learn more about their methods, solutions, and outlook in the space. And hopefully have a little fun doing it. I'm your host, Chris Clark. With me today is Jason Wang, the Chief Risk Officer at Allstate Canada. Jason has over 20 years in the financial services industry, focusing on all things risk, from risk analytics to risk reporting. In his last job, Jason was responsible for building the risk register for his entire organization. And in his current role, he's in the process of revamping their risk register, a topic we'll come back to shortly. Welcome, Jason. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what your journey has been in GRC? Sure. Um, I started my career uh, as a credit risk analyst and spent most of my junior years analyzing consumer lending. Um, so there's a lot of data analytics involved, data science, uh, building predictive models. As I, so a lot of numbers, very quantitative. As I become more senior, I start to connect the dots uh, outside of the data science world and realize risk management is bigger and more than just data science. Um, so I start to connect the dots among different risk categories and realize non-credit and non-financial risks are equally important in a financial institution. Um, as the, the head of risk for an organization, it's crucial to see the whole picture. Even though credit risk has a direct impact, um, it, it easily shows up as one number, you know, what's the loss rate, 2%, 3%, whatever the, the number is. And that is often tied to compensation of a lot of people, tied to the performance of uh, the whole company. Um, but outside of this number, there is a real world that's the real GRC world. That's so fascinating. Um, I mean, the the path from you know one type of data expanding the full risk management. I, I'd be interested, like now that you've kind of seen that full range, like, what advice do you have for someone who's exploring a career in GRC? Um, where have you found the most value as you've looked at the risk landscape? I would say, depending on your career stage, you should probably think about your mid-term and long-term goal. Where do you want to go? If you want to become a chief risk officer one day, then uh, obviously you need to have both the quantitative and the qualitative side, the credit and the non-credit risk. Uh, you need to probably get exposure into both worlds. Um, as you, if you are a junior and you're just building out, maybe finding out which domain do you want to focus on and what's your key strength, then explore a little bit. So keep an open mind would be uh, probably my first uh, piece of advice to people. If you do decide to go into the non-credit and non-financial risk, because there's a lot of qualitative stuff that we're talking about, then you need to, to be prepared to fight the bias that A, it's not important to because it's not data science. So you know you guys are not the most intelligent people in the world. Why do we have to listen to you? Um, three, because oftentimes you're actually putting up a stop sign to things and people could see you as, but why are you stopping this? Because we're trying to go forward and make money, right? Um, so, you know, in some organizations, risk management is nicknamed revenue prevention, for example, or sales prevention. And that's, I would say, of course, a very wrong conception of what it is. What it is, is to set up guardrails to make sure that the company does things within the risk tolerance. And um, there have been abundance of examples or case studies where if a particular institution, a bank, doesn't do things within the risk tolerance, you know what's going to happen? One day, it's going to collapse. And uh, it's always fascinating to look at these case studies. 
I, I, I'm sure this is going to be a theme that comes up pretty often in our conversation and uh, around just like risk can often be seen as the almost the enforcer in a lot of ways. I I, <laughs> I like the use of um, revenue prevention because it's such a false narrative, I think, in a lot of cases where we, you know, we're really meant to make a strategic enabler, like helping you make better decisions with your risk data to actually empower the business along the way. Um, so I, I I think we're going to hit on a lot of that topic as we go along. Um, before we jump too too heavy into, you know, the the credit risk and um, how that should compare to your qualitative risk. I was like starting with something around like um, risk management in real life. So just, I think whether or not we, you know it, we're all risk managers in some way. Um, one, <laughs> one example that I like is this concept of uh, hedging your happiness. So if you're super invested in, let's say a sports team, for example, oftentimes uh, you actually bet on your opponent because in that case, you're either way you win, either you win money from if your team loses or you win happiness from your own team winning. So I love that concept of like transferring risk uh, from from your emotional state. Uh, do you have an example of some like risk management in real life that you've used? Um, yeah, so I can just piggyback on your uh, example right there to to hedge your happiness. Uh, I would say a few years ago when oil was um, pretty volatile, it, it is still volatile, but these days it's kind of uh, stabilized. Um, I would actually buy into um, oil-related FTEs. Um, so part of the thinking is, you know, if um, the crude oil becomes more expensive and then we find gasoline is more expensive, I'm paying more than pump, at least I'm making some money uh, off of my uh, stock portfolio, right? So that's just the, like your example of uh, hedging your happiness. So if I'm losing a little, little bit here, uh, don't worry, I'm actually gaining a little bit there too. Um, but, you know, talking about beyond myself, I think uh, a real life risk management and stress testing example that a lot of Canadians live, they may not even realize this, but they live this is um, the home mortgage stress testing rule um, that's effective in Canada. Um, so in case you didn't know, uh, in Canada, if you get a mortgage, it's never for the entire duration of the amortization. It's not like you get this, you sign the contract, it's 30 years. Um, it will always be a portion of that. Um, so for example, I always do five years. So after five years, it's open market. Um, you can renew with your existing uh, lender. If you choose not to renew because the rate is good, uh, better somewhere else, you go somewhere else. So we do this probably every few years and it doesn't have to be five years, but five years seem to be um, the, the term duration that is the most attractive to people because of rate. But a few years ago, the regulators in Canada uh, uh, instituted this rule where if you are applying for a mortgage, the bank is not qualifying you based on the prevailing rate today. The bank is qualifying you on today's rate plus two percentage points. And the whole thinking is, um, we probably don't worry too much about if you can afford that monthly payment or semi-monthly payment today, but we want to think about, and remember a few years ago, um, Canada and probably US too were in very low, like historically, probably the lowest point in interest rates, right? So uh, the regulator wanted to be forward-looking and uh, ask the question, you know, if we 
approve these consumers for mortgage. We want to make sure even the rate, when the rate is increased by two percentage points, they can still make that payment. So everyone is qualified based on the rate as of now, plus two percentage points. So that's, and we actually call it stress testing. Uh, so it's a concept that a lot of consumers, they may not understand the term, but they know that if you are applying for a new mortgage or renewing, this is something that you have to go through. So of course, in normal times, this would work well, but because, you know, when would when would the rates increase like that, 2% overnight, right? But as we saw, uh, what happened in 2022 and the first half of 2023, the central banks in many countries, so that would be the Fed in the US uh, and the Bank of uh, Canada, um, they and a lot of other countries, they raised interest rates aggressively. Um, news, so uh, this is early August, news coming out of yesterday's news is that uh, Bank of England just raised the rate again. Um, Canada raised rate raised rates by more than four percentage points. So in, in the last year and a half, so the 2% buffer turned out not to be enough for some consumers. So they were stress test and they were good for the 2%, but now they may not be good. So this has a real impact to the consumer's monthly budget and cash flow. And banks who underwrote a lot of these mortgages now face a possible increase in delinquencies. Do you see change? That, like, that's fascinating because it's, you know, I think a lot of times it's the right risk management move, but then it doesn't always work in these kind of like, it's almost impossible to plan for, I don't want to say black swan because this isn't quite that rare of an example, but like in these really like extreme cases where you're outside your 95% confidence bound around it, like do you envision there being changes to that stress test to start to almost take it like, okay, can they hit 2%? And then also, let's say, could they hit the 4% threshold as well? Um, I don't know uh, if we're going to change the rule so that the buffer turns to 4% instead of 2%. Um, again, you know, I think this has to do with our, our own prediction or um, uh, policymakers' prediction of, are we going to go through this kind of aggressive rate hike in the next short while? The answer is probably no. So current new applicants for mortgages are still being qualified on today's rate plus two, and it's already very high already, right? So today's rates, depending on which bank you talk to, it could be five, it could be even higher, plus two, that would be seven something. And this is a drastic con con contrast with um, what a lot of consumers got into, which, is, which was around the two to 3% range. So very different. I think probably the concern um, or the focus for the bank's risk management team now will be what do we do with these consumers who already got in the door when the stress testing was uh, the rate plus two and now they may have a cash flow cash flow problem um, right so the existing problem needs to be solved because otherwise then you're looking at um, I would say a domino effect of these people not being able to repay the mortgage, so they'll need to sell the house. And then you see uh, the increase in inventory in properties on the market, which drive down the the, the average housing uh, price. And then that triggers some more consumers to realize, oh, I'm in a bad deal here, um, so I'm going to have to put it on the market. So this triggers a whole tsunami of 
bad effects and bad consequences. So I think the banks probably should focus on, let's talk about what we do with these consumers, maybe proactively go out to them to restructure the mortgage in a way that is more friendly to their cash flow in a responsible way. I think that would be uh, in uh, the mutual best interest of both the uh, lending organization and the consumer. That's fascinating. I mean, the the, the whole concept of kind of like, you know, one thing triggers this whole set of events around it. I mean, something similar that we, I think has been popping up a lot on the news that kind of feels like it could have been a similar situation is the Silicon Valley Bank instance. And so, you know, I know that caused a lot of that failure caused a lot of uncertainty in the industry. Like, as, as you saw things unfold with that, like, what's your perspective on what happened? So um, before I get into my analysis of, you know, what happened here with the Silicon Valley Bank, I would say um, risk folks do have a responsibility of being forward looking to not only looking at to not only look at the current quarter, the next quarter, or the current year, but also um, they need to sound alarms if they think that something's going to happen. They also need to uh, have a view on what do I think is the domino effect. If this happens, what is that going to trigger, and what is that going to trigger? Um, this view doesn't always exist because people are sometimes just focusing on short term. Uh, performance because everyone is measured on that and your compensation is tied to that. Um, so this is probably a topic for university professors to think about compensation design to tie you into. It's ha- it has been an age-long conversation, but obviously I think um, the way that the current market economy works is that you are incentivized to produce uh, results that that are visible like right away. But coming back to Silicon Valley Bank, uh, I think The symptom and the trigger of the collapse of the bank was asset liability mismatch in duration. Um, So what that means is the bank's assets were largely tied in long duration bonds that were not going to mature for years because they did this because they wanted um, high uh, returns. Uh, The longer the duration of the bond, the higher returns, of course. Um, They wanted that high returns, but the bank's depositors could withdraw their own money at any time. So this is a mismatch in duration. And um, in my last role, we actually had measures and some metrics and quantitative measures uh, on liquidity measure on the asset liability match so that we were actually looking at, um, and we had a range of tolerance. So this metric should be between this percent to this percent. If it goes out, then we may have a liquidity issue. So we were every quarter watching this figure. So the Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of capital, actually. Um, They were not short of capital, but the capital was just not available because it was tied up in the uh, longer duration and it was not possible to get the money out, actually. But so when people, when their depositors started to line up at the door to take their money out, it created a liquidity crisis. So that was just the symptom. The root cause to me, is, again, is the lack of oversight on a complete and comprehensive risk view. Um, sometimes, sometimes we call it the risk register, which is a list of all your risks. And this risk register should cover all risk categories. For a bank under the Canadian regulations, there are six types of risks that this risk register will have to cover. And they are credit risk, 
interest rate risk, sometimes also called market risk, liquidity risk, operational risk, strategic risk, and regulatory slash legal slash reputational risk. At least on a quarterly basis, management should measure um, their interest rate risk, liquidity risk, and of course, all the other risks. But some can be quantified, some can't. Um, but at least on a quarterly basis, the bank should have a view of the entire risk register, not just credit risk, and then present to the board. Uh, on an annual basis, at least they need to do stress testing for adverse scenarios uh, and then present to the board. I'm not sure if this was properly done because uh, when this story was unfolding, uh, when I read um, the news coverage and the analysis, I think the narratives coming out of the bank was that, well, you know, we are always prudent and very diligent in selecting whom we lend money to. Um, the, the business client that we pick to be our client uh, for us to give them um, the, the lending facility, we actually qualify them on very stringent criteria. So they're all like good target. Yes, you're only talking about credit risk, right? So there's the non-credit risk. This is probably going to be the theme for today. The non-credit risk is what actually caused the bank to collapse. And they may or may not realize that. And then you add on to the fact that the bank was without a chief risk officer for eight months. Uh, that probably added to lack of oversight. Um, and I think in fairness to the board, they actually, for in lieu of the CRO, the board actually jumped in and had more frequent meetings. But in a way, I think the board can't replace domain experts. And that would be the chief risk officer and a team of risk experts, uh, GRC experts that report to the CRO to compile this full view of what's going on here. Um, so I'm not sure if the board is qualified to do that. And that's also part of, uh, I think you can call it the root cause or the symptom, but that's that's my analysis of what uh, happened here. Unfortunately, I see this with other lending organizations, uh, lending organizations too, which is, just to focus on credit risk because it's easy, easily measured. It shows up on the PNL, easily reported. Um, credit, credit risk is associated with a group of data scientists who are very smart, uh, intelligent people. And uh, sometimes the non-credit risk team is small and because they don't use a lot of data science, they're seen as a less fancy job, less sexy job. So this creates some kind of a bias and this misconception about risk management in the financial institutions. There, there's a lot there that I'd love to kind of hit on. Um, the, kind of starting from the beginning, you mentioned this uh, this concept of you know misaligned timeframes of it, where your their investment, their capital was tied up in long term bonds or long term you know securities versus you know the consumers had immediate cash needs um there's this concept of like risk velocity where you know like how quickly if a risk is to happen and you know with that likelihood there's almost that third aspect of well how quickly could that risk impact an organization do you see that starting to be a bigger factor in organizations approach to risk management now that we are seeing things moving yes so I would say um, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was a wake-up call 
for many organizations. And now they're paying more attention to making sure that they do some analysis in this regard to ensure that at least they, they don't run into that short-term cash crunch. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, the other piece you mentioned was around the, um, like a lack of a chief risk officer in like as a head there's, um, I have a two-year-old son, so we're very into kids' movies right now. And one of them is The Incredibles. And there's this villain uh, syndrome in the first one who is, you know, he's not a superhero. But he has this line where, um, you know, if everyone is super, no one is. Um, and it's almost, I, I kind of like that concept where, like, in this case, there where there's no chief risk officer or no head of risk in some way, you know, if everyone's responsible for risk, like no one is. Um, so I'd be interested in um, in your perspective, what is the right way to structure almost like a risk management organization within a financial institution? Does there always need to be a CRO? I would say yes, because um, I don't want to talk myself out of a job. Um, but joke aside, I think if I go back to textbook definition of what's risk management. Uh, there are three lines of defense in a financial institution. The operational teams, the frontline teams, they're the first line of defense. Um, and then risk management is the second line of defense. So the first line of defense is people who do things. The second line of defense is people who check the first line of defense. That has to be there. And then the third line of defense is internal audit who comes in to check the first and the second line. And of course, you can expand this to the fourth line, which is the external auditors, regulators. But um, oftentimes, if you read regulatory requirements or documents, at least in Canada, they actually make it clear that the risk department should A, have direct access to the board. If they want to say something, they need to have access to the board. Two, the head of this function needs to have the independence and the stature in the company. And stature means if you don't make CRO part of your executive team and it's a director, and sometimes I see very weird setup in uh, some organizations, Chris, for example, the uh, head of risk reporting into the CO. So basically, you're letting the second line of defense reports to a boss that you are actually monitoring, and this isn't right. So um, the second line of defense needs to have that independence and stature. So the CRO should have the stature where um, the viewpoint and the analysis is respected by the rest of the organization. If the CRO is not about the person, by the way, it's about the viewpoint. If the CRO said, I need to let everyone be aware of a particular risk, or we're going to cross our tolerance threshold on a particular thing, everyone needs to listen to that and take corrective actions. And if we use the analogy of a vehicle, then um, everyone else, your sales department, your marketing, you go, you, you know, you guys go out and drive revenue. You are um, the gas pedal, the engine, you move the vehicle forward. But if you're going to run into a ditch or if you're going to hit another object, this is where the brakes have to work. So risk management will be the brakes, right? So I think it's safe to argue that it's common sense. Uh, you can't have a vehicle without brakes. But in the business world, 
sometimes people still argue, well, are we okay without risk management? Or, you know, just to satisfy the regulators, let's set up this team. It's a cost center anyway, because they don't make money, but we're just going to let the team sit there. But when they want to break and stop the vehicle, we don't need to listen. So um, it's interesting to me where if you use the vehicle as the analogy, everyone kind of understands. Uh, but when it's a big organization, then people don't quite understand why brakes are important. Actually, they're not important. They're essential. You have to have them. My grandfather might disagree with you about the brakes, but I very much understand the the, the concept of, of that within an organization. Um, the And then I guess last the last point from a while ago that I, I'm interested in is, you, you know, there was this focus on credit risk, but there's these five other types of risk. It's quantifiable, it's sexy, like it's that's the thing. But to play, you know, kind of like the flip side devil's advocate here, where um historically hasn't credit risk been one of the main sources of risk within financial institutions? Should it have that kind of outsized weighting? I think, uh, Chris, you brought up a very good word historically because everything's evolving, right? Even the three lines of defense model isn't that old. Like it's only been here for uh, maybe a couple of decades. So historically, if we go way, way, way back, maybe to, I would say, five, uh, 50 or 100 years ago, if you set up a bank, the one thing, the one risk that, that you will think about would be credit risk. Okay, I'm lending money out to whether it's a business client or a consumer client. I worry about the ability to get my money back plus interest. So as the world evolves, we look at the environment that we operate in, that's where we need to add in uh, all the, the other kind of risks, right? So operational risk. A lot, a big part of the operational risk, by the way, is cyber technology. So it's safe to say that because of things that have happened, then risk management kind of says, okay, so now we're adding this to our scope and we need to look at this. So um, I think the what goes into your risk register is constantly evolving. And if many, many, many years ago, it was only credit risk for a good reason, I would say we respect what happened in the past, but risk people should always look at emerging risks and think about, given the environment that we are in today, what are we doing, right? So emerging risks would be now we're talking about AI, everyone is talking about, and there, there are risks tied to artificial intelligence and the use, the ethical use of AI. So that's one. And we're in a world where we know cyber risk is a big topic. Ransomware attacks do happen. Third-party risk, fourth-party risk. So at some point, the risk, I would say, not probably not annually, but the risk officer also needs to be that voice in the organization to lead a view on here are the emerging risks. I know that when I present my quarterly report to my board, I actually always have a slide to talk about the emerging risks. So I think this evolves, right? So we're definitely past the point where you can only focus on credit risk because that's dangerous. Well, I mean, you brought up an interesting point of like emerging risks where, you know, we may not know necessarily the act, the full impact yet because we're still learning to adjust to them. How do you, um, how do you present, say, your risk register across these risk domains, like in an apples to apples comparison? Because, you know, credit risk, we can put a dollar amount to, 
but is that possible with operational risk? Are you like, what is the right way to present these different types of risk in a way that allows the board to make meaningful decisions on each of them? So some of the risks are going to not be, we're not going to be able to quantify in any way, but you still try your best to think of if you can tie a metric. So cyber risk, if the organizations conduct mock phishing tests with employees, and I hope they do, because we're in 2023, if companies are still not doing dropping uh, mock phishing emails to their employees, it's a big miss, right? Then what's the click rate? That's something that you can you can measure. And um, the benefit of trying to quantify things that seem to not be a seem to not be quantifiable is that you, you set up a subjective view and you can discuss with your board and upper management about what's our tolerance threshold so just on phishing email click rate for example your your tolerance threshold shouldn't be zero because i've never in my life i've dropped so many uh, mock tests i've never seen zero click rate particularly with our large organizations, you're always going to have someone who click on, whether it's a new employee who doesn't quite get get it, uh, or someone who's in a hurry and reading the email on the phone and thinking, oh, something I have to do, let me click on that, right? So it's not gonna be zero, but then what's your realistic um, expectation of the range? Discussion with the board, um, aided by research that you can get from the industry because a lot of people are putting out papers like this, right? So then you set up a, a something like that. Um, on even people risk, you know, you can measure your people's turnover. I hope organizations are conducting an annual employee survey to measure their engagement. And of course you ask a whole lot of questions and you can measure, are they happy with you? What's the top three strengths? What's the top three uh, opportunities, right? So, um, are they happy with total reward, compensation? Uh, do they think that they 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 buy into the company's strategic direction? You can measure all of these with the answers, and they turn all of these answers into a percentage. So that's measurable, right? Uh, when it comes to staffing, call center, you know, you always you always have ratios. Uh, in call center, you have the call handle time, the draw time, and uh, first resolution contact, which means how many of your customers can actually get their thing, get their problem resolved with the first call without you having to transfer them to somebody else or without them having to call you back. So I would say um, try your best, challenge yourself, stretch yourself to think of whether you can put a quantitative measure on even things that seem to not be quantifiable because then it, it takes away the feelings. Because some people, when they look at the report, they're like, I feel that shouldn't be read. I feel that should be. Well, it shouldn't be your feeling. It should be, let's subjectively measure what's our tolerance. Are we beyond the tolerance? Are we within the tolerance? Also, having that metric would give you the historical comparison because next quarter, you can come back and look at, well, where were we last quarter? Are we better or worse now? And you can present that time series view to the management and the board so that they get a sense of, is the organization moving towards the right direction or going backwards when it comes to risk management. That's awesome. It feels almost intangible being able to take these kind of like concepts and turn them into some type of quantifiable thing. You know, we talk a lot about the board and you mentioned quarterly reports. Are there other methodologies or like mechanisms that you use 
when reporting to the board that make it effective for them? Yes. So when you talk to the board, you want your report to be easily understandable, for example, right? So, you know, I, I think I just talked about color coding, but uh, you can use your feelings to drive the color code, but you can use um, uh, things that are either really subjective, quantifiable, or semi-quantifiable to drive this. Um, so I was a user of LogiGate, actually, and I can tell you that within the portal, um, questions are asked about the likelihood of something happening. So this is where you will think about the likelihood of this happening, this risk event happening, whether it's 0 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 50. And you can define for your organization what the different bands are, so the likelihood. And then on the other axis, talk about the impact, right? So whether it's financial, actual financial impact, again, things that seem not quantifiable or not financial might always have a financial impact. If you have real data breach um, and you um, leak cons- your customer's data outside, this is where we talk about the clash action lawsuit. Uh, you having to pay for consumer's credit monitoring for an X number of years. We're talking about real dollars here, right? So. Um, X and Y axis, where one is the likelihood of something happening, the other one is impact of something happening, then you can put them into color coding. Okay, low likelihood, low impact, that can be green, right? And then as, as it goes higher, whether it's on the likelihood or the impact um, direction, then the color will change gradually from green to yellow and the orange and red, like blaring red, right? For the board, then you can present that color coding or a heat map. You can also then show them where we were last quarter. So when I used this tool, it was very handy. I found it where I, on one slide, I will always have, here's our heat map for this quarter compared to our heat map for the last quarter. And we had 21 items on the risk register. And I would actually put the distribution on the heat map. So we have two items that are red this quarter compared to three, then you can just point the board's direction to, this is because we dropped one to a lighter color code because we took mitigating measures somewhere, right? Or, you know, we used to have 10 in uh, green. Now we have only five. Uh, That's because these five, and you talk about the five, have moved to a more severe color coding for whatever reason. So you try and break it down that way to the board. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it's not just the point in time risk landscape, but that trend analysis really helps show the, it almost informs the decision as well, because you can see where you're headed and make further business decisions off of that in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, speaking of the board uh, and financial institutions, you know, the SEC has been re- releasing new regulations around and guidelines around, um, you know, cyber. Um, and that's big in the U.S. I'd be interested in um, are similar concerns being addressed in Canada? How is that working? Yes, the Canadian um, regulator for the the federal level regulator for uh, for all the financial institutions, including insurance companies and banks, called uh, OSFI for O S F I, the Office of um, Superintendents for Financial Institutions, is going through transformation themselves and they are taking a broader 
viewpoint on what are the risks. So um, I think early, earlier we talked about the journey for a lot, of, uh, a lot of institutions to go from only focusing on credit risk to a bigger risk um, landscape. OSPI did the same, whereas years ago, they would only just ask the financial institutions to make sure that you have good capital. That's it. Okay. Now they're looking at everything. So in the last short while, and by short while, I think, I mean, maybe a year or a year and a half, OSPI has published guidelines on many different things. And I can name climate risk. It's a very big thing. Um, insurance companies have either the end of 2024 or the end of 2025. So there's two phases to implement a lot of um, the measures to be compliant with the guideline. Third-party risk management. And now they have, uh, they're, they're going to publish people and culture risk. And they are initiating something called a digital innovation that covers artificial intelligence, cryptocurrency, all of these new things that are new in the industry. Yes. So years ago, you wouldn't imagine the day when OSPI is actually going to govern the, uh, the, govern these aspects, but now they are. So coming back to your topic, um, you know, I think on cyber, this is something that OSPI is also working on. Um, they haven't published a guideline yet, uh, but they're working on it. But I would say outside of OSPI, the privacy regulator is um, beefing up penalties uh, and and um, and oversight on the consequences of if you don't manage cyber well. Uh, in case you didn't know, unlike uh, unlike the U.S., Canada has full coverage of privacy regulations. Among the 13 provinces and ter territories, three provinces have their provincial privacy laws. Then the, re the rest of the country is governed by the federal privacy laws. So this is different from the U.S. where, you know, it started off in California and then it's uh, expanding to a few other states. But you know, there's 50 states. So it's going to take you guys some time to get there. Um, Canada right now, I would say everyone, all the businesses, wherever you are in all the jurisdictions are governed by privacy. And the regulations um, have really stringent re requirements on reporting of data breaches. So that's on the back of your mind. Then, you know, whenever there's a cyber risk, you always think about, okay, if something does happen, not only are we facing our consumers directly, we need to actually report. So businesses are, are required to report to the privacy regulators if something has happened. And the province of Quebec um, has a new law, brand new, called Law 25. It's going to include monetary penalties. So this is a, a new trend that's starting in Canada. The current law is only on, there, there's not a lot of teeth if you will. So if businesses really fail in some regard, the regulator will just name and shame you. They write a report, put it on the public website with the, a business's name in there, but there's nothing else they can do. So now there's real monetary consequences starting in Quebec and they're mimicking the European GDPR. So the range of the monetary penalty ranges from 15,000 Canadian dollars, so that's the lower range, to many million, like 10 million, or X percent, depending on situations and the size of the business, it could be 2% or 4% of your global annual revenue. So think about how much of that would be, right? 
Um, so the federal regulation doesn't currently impose penalties, but I think it might go there. Uh, and given this reg regulatory environment, then uh, companies, I would say most companies are pretty proactive when it comes to preventing cyber. That's interesting that um, I always, I don't have anything to back this up, so bear with me. But it typically, like, it feels like the, you know, the EU and Europe is tends to be a little ahead of the US and a lot of these regulations where they're a little bit more proactive around privacy, around data protection, and then the US will follow suit, particularly in this area. And it sounds like Canada is a little bit in kind of like the the middle of that, like where they we where the Europe is still setting the trend and then Canada, then US. Is that has that been your experience with the regulatory environment? Uh, I think uh, you uh, you really described it well. Um, so the Canadian regulators would always look to what's happening in Europe. Is there any good practices that we can learn from? Um, given also driven by the historical mindset, and remember, Canada is part of the Commonwealth, and we plead our allegiance to uh, the king. So given that, there's very strong cultural connections, of course, with. Um, uh, with the UK, but we look beyond the UK to the rest of Europe to look at what's going on here. And I know that we're talking about risk management, but another example in the banking world would be open banking. Um, so this started off in a few different countries and the United Kingdom implemented open banking a few years ago. So the Canadian regulator in 2021 actually published a paper to say, we want to to um, evolve our banking and innovate together. So this is something that's currently uh, really progressing fast, both on the government level and the institution level. Uh, FinTechs are playing a role. The traditional uh, banking institutions are actually partnering with the FinTechs to drive this. So, so outside of privacy, I would say that that's open banking is another example of how um, the Canadian policymakers are looking across the Atlantic Ocean at Europe to drive some of the um, the, the industry leading um, the thoughts and practices. That's so fascinating. Uh, could you explain quickly what open banking is and like how that that follows? Um, so let's visualize what it means to a U.S. consumer. Um, for example, if you have your accounts with Chase, and then you have your accounts with Wells Fargo, if open banking were reality in the US and you as a consumer participated with a few clicks, when you logged in into either, okay, let's say today you're logging in into Chase, you actually get to see your account information from your Wells Fargo accounts, che checking, savings, mortgage, lending, credit card, whatever. Okay. So obviously under the Wells Fargo logo, and then of course the organizations will have to participate, right? So that gives the consumer a convenient, the convenience where you have everything under one view, you know, your own assets, liability, what's your net worth, what's your current debt situation. You have a full picture instead of having to log in to, you know, a different um, accounts. Um, so that's one type of open banking. Uh, different countries do it differently, right? So 
we call that read access. So consumers only have the read and institutions have read access to each other. There's also the more aggressive way of doing open banking where um, the institutions have write access. So for example, again, let's visualize now um, you log in into your Chase account and you see your Wells Fargo and you may see a Capital One credit card and then you may see uh, another mortgage, another institution that there's a sentence somewhere that says, would you like to transfer your account to this institution simply by clicking on this? So it gives, so that's where they have right access to each other. Of course, a lot will have to happen behind this, right? So to the consumer, then with one click, you're like, yeah, I don't even remember that. I, never, I didn't even know I had this credit card with, and what's going on there, right? So I want to call consolidate. You just click on it and then that, account will be closed a new credit card will be opened and things will be transferred here so i think a lot of this is done with the consumer at the center but obviously the industry we need to make sure that when this is happening you don't cause unnecessary disruptions to the operations uh, we're going to need to think about data security transferring of data and again privacy right um also the burden on the um um a large organization or small organization to be able to do this because small organizations may not have that technical ability they may not have their own technical teams they may need to get some external help and that's more expensive to them so uh, policymakers are actually thinking about all of these and in canada right now um this is driven by the government so the government said let's do this but in the meantime, the government is really open-minded to what the industry is telling them and what the consumers are telling them. So they have focus groups led by different kinds of organizations, fintechs, uh, traditional banks, um, monolines that offer just one type of product, whether it's mortgage or credit cards and fintechs. So they um, give their voice and their opinions to the government and then this open banking lead that actually is part of the federal government works with all of them to ensure that when this is implemented in Canada, it's a solution that really benefits consumers, but in the meantime, fosters innovation, fosters collaboration and fair competition among all the market participants. Yeah, that was, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, to your point, like it very much feels like a consumer centric regulation in a lot of ways. I'd be interested in like, you know, this introduces, I'm sure it introduces new risk to the banks and like that's almost a lowering the cost of switching for con their consumers. Do you see there being um, like, how could you see institutions almost mitigating that risk in some way? Is it by complying? Is, is it purely a compliance-based approach? Is it what else could institutions do basically to almost like attract and retain business when the cost of switching is so low? So institutions will have to innovate. Um, if we think that some traditional institutions have been kind of complacent in the past because they're a big bank, they have good market share, they have a good brand name, and they have a huge branch network um, then that might not be your competitive edge in the future. Okay. So 
consumers, if it's that easy for them to switch with one click, then guess what? All that matters would be probably just the rate. What's, what's the pricing, right? So this is where, um, because of the, the overhead for large organizations, then they need to think about strategically, do they want to still maintain that or do they want to be more agile? So I think competition, pricing, innovation, and then strategically, institutions will have to think about, now there's a whole ecosystem. Do I actually still want to be the bank that I was yesterday? Um, some, some interesting concepts that have been thrown out would be, do we want to be just a distributor of somebody else's product? Because if there's a lot of fixed cost to uh, underwrite uh, or service, whether it's a, a, a checking accounts, and we know that checking accounts actually don't make money, uh, mortgages tie up, tie up a lot of your capital, right? So institutions of different uh, types and sizes, now is a good opportunity for them to think about, okay, do I pivot strategically? Because in the past, I've always wanted to underwrite mortgages, but you know we're a smaller fish in the pond, and we don't have that capital. So now with this, you know, one centralized view for the consumer, we can simply be the reseller and the distributor of certain types of products, even for legacy banks, uh, because they take on all the product themselves. If they don't think that they can compete uh, with more agile companies on the same products on pricing then they could even become distributors themselves. So it's a good opportunity for them to really, really think about what they want to be in the future, given the open banking reality and innovate and pivot. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Like, will people start to specialize? Will they start, like, it's going to drive innovation? Um, it's cool. That's exciting. Uh, I, I didn't know I was going to be this interested in the Canadian financial market this quickly. So. Um, you know, when speaking of innovation, I know like there's been a lot of buzz around like artificial intelligence and the way it, you know, is going to change basically everything. I'd be interested in like, um, what do you see as some of the main risks around AI in in the world? There are a lot of risks. <laughs> um, so AI is not a new thing, by the way. I think you know, the buzz around uh, chat GPT and other generative AI, that's actually generative AI. Um, but AI in the data science world has been there for a long time. And, you know, things, if you hear terms, machine learning, um, that's actually really AI uh, called a different name. And what it means is um, traditionally, you know, we would use humans to do a predictive model, to use data science that you throw a whole bunch of variables and data points into your um, your modeling exercise and you build a predictive model. And now we just tell the machine to do this by themselves. The one risk that comes out of unsupervised uh, modeling practice would be that if you don't tell the machine to stay away from those variables that could violate fair lending, that could be seen as discriminative, then the output of your model would be crossing the line. If I give you an example, um, you know, we know that you can make your lending decision based on the applicant's age, gender, 
origin of a country, right? Um, so that kind of, you know, these are the variables you can't, you can never use in making a decision about lending. But if you don't tell the machine to stay away from these and you don't structure your data in a way, there's almost seems to be a firewall where these variables can get into your machine learning environment. But sometimes people are not always that diligent. And when raw variables are coming in from all different sources, you have various different source tables. And out of convenience, if one day uh, a junior analyst who happens to be a little sloppy that day is like, yeah, I'm just too lazy to name this, um, uh, whatever dem demographic, um, I'm just going to call it um, the variable M34. And the machine doesn't know that that's something to stay away from. You create a model, you use the model, then you realize M34 is somebody's age, right? So that's uh, going to be violating a lot of rules. So that's in the traditional data science world, the biggest risk being violating uh, fair lending. In generative AI, the risks are more around um, can we verify the results to make sure that they are accurate. And uh, I would liken this to using a search engine. Um, you know, the predominant one being Google. It's in a way like that, right? So if I go onto Google and type in the, the search terms, I think um, it's everyone's common practice where you don't always go to the first link that comes up. Sometimes that's an ad. Sometimes that's whoever pays the, the biggest dollars for that particular term, right? And sometimes you don't trust that that link actually gives you the correct information. And um, for example, if I'm looking for, oh, what's the current uh, immigration rule around a particular thing for the, for the US or the Canadian government, you type it in, guess what? The first few links that come up might be from law firms that specialize in immigration. Um, and they probably in, uh, interpret things correctly because that's what they do, right? But you don't know if that information is old or new. And if a link is actually timestamped to 2012, well, then, you know, more than a decade has, has passed. And is that information still, um, uh, and the whole pandemic has passed, right? So is that information still up to date? We don't know. This is where I would look at the link and the URL to look for that one that's actually the, the US or the Canadian government. So if we do that with a search engine, we need to be doing that with chat GPT or generative AI. But guess what? Today, if you ask a question, something is given to you. Uh, I don't think they give you two to three different options to say, well, you know, you asked me to write an essay about uh, whatever. Here's three different ways to do it. You be the judge. That's not what's happening today, right? So they just give you one answer and a lot of people take that and run. Um, so is that accurate? Have you validated that? We don't know, right? So that would be the first risk. And the second risk would be um, intellectual property. So <laughs> we know that um, Hollywood is really nervous about this because, you know, uh, machines can take, whether it's their scripting, um, characters, um, actors' voices, whatever that's existing, whether it's text or image or sound, and machines can just turn them into something totally different without paying them, right? So, um, and that's a huge concern for us too. 
Uh, if you use generative AI in your business, you ask the machine to write up something. Well, let's think of a, a marketing uh, script for you, or let's do whatever. You may not know that part of it is protected because it's somebody else's IP, right? So, and then you publish that, and then you get uh, a letter from a lawyer. So, IP is a big risk here. And then, of course, if you ever put your customer's data into this, well, where is that stored? Because you're using a third party to, to generate this thing for you, right? So where's that data going to go? Are they deleting your customer's data after you use this one-time uh, one thing? We don't know. So these are the big risks for everyone to think about if you ever going to use a generative AI. Yeah, that's uh, so fascinating that like the, the IP kind of concept of it. Um, I think a lot of people, <laughs> I know this is kind of a joke on the internet, but people were saying that like, you know, we worried about AI was going to come and take like all the, like take all the office jobs. Like it was going to put the office out of business. And really what we're finding is it's actually doing, it's taking the artists, the the poets, the, you know, the animation out instead, which is really a, it's something that I don't think people thought about or predicted in generative AI as being a risk. It was not going to be around like automated tasks, but rather around, you know, this like creative thought in a lot of ways, which is fascinating. Um, I absolutely agree with you. Um, and in my analysis, the the reason why um, the first type of jobs that could be replaced by generative AI would not be what you and I do as office jobs, but more on the creative side is because in the creative world, you are allowed to be creative, right? Um, there's no right or wrong answer on any particular topic. So that might be different for the business world where, you know, for example, I think the traditional consulting companies, although they do tell you that they're nervous, they may not need to, at least for the next few years, but who knows what the technology is gonna be um, 10 years from now. But for now, if you have a business problem, you go out to a consulting company and you're like, you know, we have this critical problem that we definitely need to solve. Uh, like right away, probably you need somebody who's done this for a long time to give you that solution, that package. This is where you're allowed to be too creative, right? So, um, and generative AI is doing things that's kind of not in, you, you can't put guardrails on this. So they can give you whatever <laughs> they find in their source data, right? So imagine a scenario where you're like, Oh, the world is, you know, um, we're running out of real estate because we typically have only um, two floors of this building. But in the last short while, uh, we expanded, we doubled our sales. So now we actually have double our employees. What do we do? And you ask generative AI and AI tells you, go to Mars, follow Elon Musk. Right. So you won't take that. You're going to be like, oh, gee, well, might as well just ask somebody who's real. Um, so I think for office jobs where creativity isn't really a few words like allowed or appreciated or valued, depending on the type of job, right? Then this is where I think you need that human, someone who's intelligent and experienced and knowledgeable to still do that job. But um, again, you know, I think creative jobs like creating uh, and in cre creative kind of work 
AI could even be better than humans. So this is where I think the concern lies. That's so interesting. And it kind of goes back to the concept of like what you said, um, a lot of it is based on the data that's coming in. And in the creative world, you may not need as much data to define what is good because art is on the forefront and it's breaking and it and it can change versus in a lot of like scenarios, you need a lot of data to build a model that is accurate and correct and capable. Uh, so I appreciate that perspective on it. Um, those are all the, all the main questions I had today. What I'd love to kind of hear is, um, you know, it's been a fantastic conversation. I can say I've learned so, so much. Um, what are some of the common, like, is there like a book or um, what do you do to to learn about the risk industry? What are some great sources for, for folks and, and me to look at? <laughs> um, there are so many books. I think I can't name one, but we're in a world where there's a lot of free resources on the internet. Um, so there are um, YouTube videos even, and there are tech talks uh, that you can follow. Uh, I would say if you're looking to learn, um, then typically go after names that are well known in the risk management world, actually LogicGate being one, and you guys have your uh, resources that can be shared to some extent with your existing clients and also, but you know, also, but with uh, uh, just the public, right? And there are some other names where they specialize in risk. So this is, you know, I sign up for a lot of newsletters. And um, also another good thing that happened as a good byproduct of the pandemic is the fast increase of webinars. So I can imagine being in webinars this frequent uh, before the pandemic, but you know, now like I get newsletters, they say, you know, tomorrow we have something to talk about third-party risk management, sign up, click here to, to sign up, right? Um, so you sign up, you have the time to participate, you listen, if you don't, they'll send you the recording probably, and you get a copy of the deck. So um, be hungry, I would say, for the risk world, Things are always changing. Um, the the frequency and the amount of emerging risks, I would say, is outpacing how a normal human would learn in a classroom setting. So you have to be creative in how you teach yourself. So keep your eyes open, your ears open, and just sign up for newsletters. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Um, any last thoughts you'd like to share with our our listeners? Uh, I would say, you know, I think. We talked about a lot today. Um, I probably would recommend uh, our listeners to um, you know think of your longer term career aspiration. Risk management is a good place to be because you know I'm speaking as one who has enjoyed my own career growth in the in in, in this area. But also think about um, how you can drive impact by being the brakes for the organization. And uh, when you talk to people who don't quite understand this, use real life examples and real life analogy to bring this to them. So risks are real. They're happening everywhere. Um, the wildfires from Canada, the smoke is blown all the way to the US, right? The air quality isn't good. I mean, we live in the real world and the real world uh, has real risks. So uh, I think it's a good career to pursue. Um, 
So, you know, think about if that's what you're passionate about. And if you are passionate about that, pursue it. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. We've loved having you and I appreciate all you shared. I've learned a ton. Um, thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.